Listener supported. WNYC Studios. If you were to ask me what so inspires me about Leonard Cohen, I would say that he wrote so lucidly about mystery. In other words, a six-year-old child could understand it, and yet it's about everything that we can't begin to fathom. This is Death, Sex, and Money. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. I'm Anna Sale. When I reached writer Pico Iyer at his home in Japan, it was late afternoon where I was and early morning the next day for Pico. If you were going to turn on a Leonard Cohen song this morning to listen to, what what song would you pick? Well, I've already answered that, Anna, because I did so with If It Be Your Will. And I, that's almost the, the prayer that I begin every important conversation with. Uh, takes me to the deepest and quietest part of myself. If it be your will Let us speak no more And my voice be still As it was before Almost every single word, a monosyllable, and yet it gets to a place that we can't begin to explain. I shall abide until... Leonard Cohen died in 2016, but he's with Pico most mornings. Pico was a longtime fan of the singer-songwriter, and then the two became close friends in the last 20 years of Cohen's life. Pico Iyer has written more than a dozen books about travel, stillness, and spirituality. His latest, The Half-Known Life, is a chronicle of his visits to holy sites and sacred places. And we started our conversation talking about when he first met Leonard Cohen at one sacred place, at a monastery outside of Los Angeles, where Cohen eventually stayed for five years, after decades of living like a rock star. Pico had been assigned a magazine story about that transition. And I will never forget <laughs> driving up into the cold, high, dark mountains uh, behind Los Angeles. And I pulled up into this parking lot. And a stooped old man in this tattered black robes came up to me in wire-rimmed glasses and a red bobble hat. And I opened the door and he gave me a deep bow. And honestly, though I'd been listening to him for 21 years at that time, I didn't realize this was Leonard Cohen. Mm. And he insisted on carrying my little bags to the cabin where I was to sleep. As soon as we got to the cabin, he went to the kitchen and he started cooking me dinner, really as if you know, I was some great dignitary and he was just an anonymous servant there to look after me. Then after a few minutes, he asked me if I needed a wife. <laughs> so that's when I had a, a sense that this is Leonard Cohen after all, as this um, surprising sense of mischief and irony at, at work. Were you able to sort of to, to talk with him as a as another person, as a friend, or, or how long did it take you to um, kind of let go of that parallel conversation that you were having, that you were noticing that you were with this musician who had been really meaningful to you? I think Leonard Cohen's great gifts as a singer and a monk and a human being were for 
honesty and intimacy. He did have that rare gift very quickly for making me feel as if there was nothing I couldn't say and that um, really in the presence of somebody uh, who, who'd known me for a long time and would forgive me anything I might say or do and was ready to do the same. And he, without my even mentioning it, volunteered his most recent um, relationship. He said, oh, you know, you might have heard about my recent girlfriend and I'm afraid I just didn't have what it took to, to make that happen. I wasn't man enough to, to be ready for the invitation she offered. So I think there was a sense that there was almost nothing he wouldn't say, nothing was off limits. But the other thing that struck me was the first time I went and visited his house. We enjoyed an, a, a nice uh, lunch. And then when lunch was finished, he took two folding chairs out to this tiny front garden, looking out on this very unremarkable residential street. And he sat down on one chair, and I sat down on the other. Nothing. And I waited for the conversation to continue. Nothing. And I think maybe 20 minutes passed, and not a single word exchanged. And finally, I thought, well, maybe this is his gentle way of saying it's time for you to go home. So I said, you know, you must be busy. I should leave. And he looked up at me, just beseechingly. And he said, please don't go. And one of the things that moved me was that he realized that silence was the most intimate thing that we could share together. Your beauty lost to you yourself, just as it was lost to them. Or take this longing from my tongue Whatever useless things these hands have done Let me see your beauty broken down Like you would do When I listen to Leonard Cohen, I feel um, it's almost like I... it's, It's... there's this deep sense of romance and that I feel like he's um, trying to seduce me into this deeper part of myself. Uh, I feel myself almost resist it um, because it maybe it's too um, that kind of powerful uh, seductive energy from a man to me sometimes feels dangerous. That's just such a perfect way of putting it about seducing you into the deeper part of yourself. I think if you'd said that to him, he would rejoice because you're absolutely right. Uh, He was extraordinarily seductive and he was wise to everything you said about the dangers of seductiveness for the seducer as much as for the seduced. When I first met him and he spoke so spellbindingly about how he was committed to this life in the monastery and he couldn't even remember that there was a Leonard Cohen who was a singer. I, I didn't buy it. I thought this is, this is a clever thing that he's uh, perpetrating on an innocent journalist. But the longer I saw him, um, the more I realized that, uh, that, that he was the real thing. And he, did, he, he knew as well as anyone what a gift he had for seduction. But I think he was going to the monastery to, um, to get past that. Because a seduction isn't going to get him anywhere with a 107-year-old Japanese man. Or when you're wearing a red bobble cap and wire rim glasses and a tattered robe that the teacher has told him he has to wear, he's, he's not looking so, so suave or <laughs> uh, irresistible. He would say sometimes, um, I'm not interested in people who can spin golden words and, and hypnotize us with their magnetism, partly because he knew he could do that too. 
he knew that it wasn't really worth very much. And if he if he won the heart of somebody doing that, it was a trick in some ways. But I think he was pushing against that for something um, much more honest and, and realistic in the, in the monastery. Uh, although he always had this great eye for beauty and um, and probably couldn't easily resist beauty, he, he was wise enough to see that wasn't what he needed. Hmm. I want to ask you about your own practice of spending time in monasteries. Um, how old were you? At what point were you in your life when you started trying to spend significant time in a monastery? I grew up in <laughs> English boarding schools, a mm-hmm. uh, 15th century boarding school in particular, where we had chapel every morning and chapel every evening, a very strict hierarchy, all-male environment. There was no straying. So in some ways, there was a good training for yeah. a monastery. And I was one of those people who I only have to see a convent of any order or a monastic courtyard, and I feel this sense of longing, the way maybe somebody feels when she sees a beautiful dress or when she sees a a chocolate cake in the window or whatever it is. I just feel this almost irresistible pull towards it. And Pico told me his pull towards spiritual, quiet spaces persisted as his education continued at Oxford and then Harvard, and after he landed a big media job in New York as a young journalist. I had this wonderful job covering world affairs for Time magazine, just the job I might have dreamed of. And I was enjoying it so much, I thought, well, I could well wake up one day, and I'm 70 years old, and I've never explored any other option. So I deliberately left uh, my my apartment on Park Avenue South and my midtown 25th floor office to go and live uh, in a temple in Kyoto for a year. And as it happens, I, my year in a temple in Kyoto only lasted a couple of weeks. But here I am, 35 years later, still in a tiny two-room rented apartment near Kyoto. So the intuition that sent me here was the right one. I just wasn't ready for it um, at that point in my life, in my late 20s. It was a, I had a romantic idea of, of sitting under the full moon, composing haiku as I looked over a dry sand garden or whatever. And I didn't realize that being a monk in Japan or anywhere means scrubbing floors and shoveling snow. And it's very menial work. And so when I left, I went to this single room in a really rickety guest house up the street, uh, which was just as simple as as the room in the monastery. But it just came without expectations and it and um, and and without the romance that I was projecting onto that place. So so it wasn't difficult. The nice kind of Leonard Cohen <laughs> detail in all this uh, is that my third week in Japan, having gone there to live in a monastery. Um, I went to a ceremony at a big temple in southern Kyoto, and I sat down next to a woman, um, and that woman is my wife, who's now sitting across the room from me. So my year in search of a monastery turned out to be the year of finding my wife-to-be. When Pico met his wife, she was the mother of two small boys and married to someone else. Pico's written two books about their marriage and life in Japan. The Lady and the Monk was the first. A second, about middle age, is called Autumn Light. Both describe the simple domestic life they've built in Japan in a spare, small apartment they share in a suburb of Kyoto. It's intimate and close, but they don't share everything. Whenever I would put on a Leonard Cohen song, she would race out of the room because it was much too much like the Buddhist chanting she'd always heard too much of as a little girl. 
yours is a beautiful love story. Um, the way you have written about it, I don't, I don't know your wife personally, but the way you have conjured her, I, um, I feel like I know her. Uh, is she listening to you as we're speaking right now? <laughs> she is. Uh-huh. Um, yes. Thank you for such lovely words. I, I have to tell you, as I was reading your latest book, uh, The Half-Known Life, and it's so much about travel and going to new places and, and having encounters with people you're just meeting, um, discovering and getting to know what they know of the place where they live. Um, I was thinking so much about how what how you've constructed your life to be one where you are you are traveling all over the world you are having these incredibly deep encounters um with people all over the place and how it almost feels in to me I I, I wonder if that feels intention to you to have the kind of long um committed relationship in a marriage that you've had where you have this life that where you've both been sort of looking out externally and and being on the road and being and traveling and then also having this long time uh committed domestic arrangement well yes i think it's it's deliberately a balance that i probably like most people uh, are trying to find and and then to maintain. I remember when I was growing up as an only child, I was thinking, well, there are two things I really want to do in the world. And one is to get to know the world firsthand, um, to see everywhere from North Korea to Tibet to Easter Island. And the second is to get to know myself and the people around me very well. In other words, to make sure that the external world doesn't efface the internal, but also to make sure I'm not so busy sitting off in some monastic cell that I neglect <laughs> the facts of the world outside. So I, I try to sustain both of those because I don't want to have a gated vision of the world or a mediated sense of the world. And I do feel, having traveled all this time, um, the more I travel, the more I see how much we don't know about the rest of the world, but how important it is to try to experience it firsthand. You, when I When you were talking about sort of Leonard Cohen's process of of um kind of coming to be uh skeptical and weary of his own charisma and charm and the limits of what that could get him it it did make me think pico about you as a young man recognizing as a someone who had found success in New York City and comfort and excitement um that you you knew at that point in your life, there's something else. I can stay on this path and I can see what this is going to lead me, but I need to step off to get somewhere deeper. Yes, I was really glad I could I could be in New York City, which in certain ways seems like the center of the world, and that I could do that very exciting job. Because if I if I hadn't, then something in me might always have thought, what would it be like to live in New York City, to work for a big magazine, to lead that life of seeming glamour or excitement? And that allowed me to to leave that behind. I've that's what I probably dreamed of when I was fourteen years old. I've now done it to my satisfaction and learned what I can from it. And so I'm I'm free of that, and I'm free to try to grasp something um, a, a little beyond that. Um, you know, during the, the pandemic, I was largely staying with my mother, who died during the pandemic, and who, soon after, she was turning 90. And I'm, I'm her only child. So 
as I was there next to her and seeing, as so many of us do, aging parents come apart in mind and body, I was thinking, what, what do I have to bring to her? What, what can I do to help her or to support myself in this difficult situation? And it's moments like that when you realize my resume is not going to help. My, my bank account's no use at all. Whatever I got living in New York City is not anything I can bring usefully to this life and death situation. The only thing probably I could bring to that is what I got from living quietly. In other words, that it's that inner savings account or the internal resources that are really all we have to bring to life, whether life is a forest fire or a pandemic or an aging parent. Coming up, Pico talks about surrendering to life's unknowns. When I think of the big moments of my life, um, they've all happened uh, with no help from me. Um, I step into a, a temple in 1987 and sit down next to a stranger. She turns out to be my wife. I go back to my mother's house in California and suddenly I'm surrounded by flames that are five stories high and by the end of that day, I've lost everything in the world. Um, I come back to my apartment in Japan and an anonymous letter arrives on my doorstep one day and there's a very um, generous check. And so I'm not a fatalist, but, but I hope I have a, a chastened and maybe humble sense of what I can and cannot affect. I want to thank the very many of you who sent in your stories of saying goodbye to cherished pets. We'll share some of them with you in the coming weeks. As I reflected over the last week about my loss, I realized that for me, many of my biggest feelings came before my dog Jack was gone. It was anticipatory grief, but I think it was also fear. I didn't want to deal with admitting that he was declining or researching the logistics of euthanasia. And I was even afraid of being in my house without him. And as it got closer and closer, my feelings became very intense. And then we did it together as a family. And it was sad, but it was okay. So we have a more abstract question for you this week. We want to hear from you if you are experiencing fear and what advice or how to be brave. Maybe you're fearful in social situations or of caregiving for a parent or looking into your finances. Or maybe you're fearful of making some other kind of change, even though what you're doing now doesn't seem to be working. We're putting together a panel of experts to consider your stories and questions about fear in just a few weeks. Is there something you're afraid to do and wish you could just get to it? Record a voice memo and tell us if there's something you're afraid of and that you could use some advice about how to be brave. Email it to us at deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. Both of Pico Iyer's parents were academics. After he was born in the UK, they moved to California for his dad to take a job in Santa Barbara, even as Pico continued his schooling in England. The central California coast became another home for Pico. 
He returns every year to spend time at a monastery in Big Sur. And he's also stayed for stretches as an adult at his parents' Santa Barbara home. He was there in 1990 when a wildfire roared through. I was alone in the house uh, with my mother's cat, and it was a very, very distant knife of orange cutting through a faraway hillside. So I just, in a very leisurely way, went downstairs and called the fire department. Uh, And by the time I came upstairs again, the electricity was gone, the phones were cut, and there was a wall of flame uh, at our living room. So I grabbed the cat, ran out of the house, and in fact, two friends had seen the fire and come up to, to be of help, so they got stuck too. So the three of us jumped into a car, and one of us said, shall we drive over the cliff, which is a real sign of desperation. And the other two said, no, better not do that. So we went down to this narrow mountain road, and when we got to the road, we saw we literally couldn't go up and we couldn't go down. There were flames on all sides of us. And the only thing that saved us was a good Samaritan because a man who had a water truck had seen a fire in the hills, and so there he was standing in the road, shirtless, Um, just pointing a hose in the direction of every roar of fire that came towards us. And the fire was so intense then that no fire truck could get up to us. And we could hear the blades of uh, helicopters above, but the smoke was so thick that they couldn't see us and we couldn't see them. So we were just alone with this man and his hose. And for three hours, essentially, he, in the process of saving his life, saved our lives. I was helped by the fact that I had my mother's <laughs> aged, aged cat in my lap, and I was determined <laughs> that the cat would survive. My life wouldn't be worth living <laughs> if mm. the cat didn't. And so we were there for three hours, and in fact, for 45 minutes in that period, I was literally under our house, so I could see the fire systematically destroying everything. Yeah. How old were you when that fire occurred? I was... Um, 33. 33. So much easier for me to start again and to learn lessons than from my parents who were uh, 60 and 59 then. And I think for my mother it was really devastating at the age of 59 to lose all her photos, every memento of her life, all her lecture notes, all her jewels, all her saris. Um, Really, really debilitating. And I was relatively fortunate in my early 30s without so many possessions. Let me ask you those those key points in your life that you had no control over. Um, I want to ask you about them a little bit more in specificity. First, you said you got a check in the mail on, on your doorstep in Japan. What was that? Well, I won't go into details, but a very, very generous friend who's a writer, I think makes it a practice of um, trying to support other younger writers that she knows so that they can write as much as possible. So this check arrived, it was completely anonymous, and I had not a clue who it came from, and it was probably equivalent to about a year's salary for me. And I wrote a thank you letter, warm thank you letter, to the richest person I know, who was very bewildered because he had nothing to do with it. <laughs> I just, it must be this very successful person who's suddenly taken people on me. But it wasn't him. It was another, it was another writer and uh, who didn't want to be thanked for it or acknowledged in any way, hence had sent it anonymously. Wow, that's amazing. How old were you when that happened? This was only a few years ago, and I I sort of wrote my next two books on the basis of that check. 
And I, I, I mention it only because I think there are equivalents <clears throat> of that in, in every life. I mean, all of us are recipients of sudden windfalls of really good luck and sudden intrusions of, of very bad luck. And however we interpret them, I think for me the important thing is just to realize I had nothing to do with, uh, with these things suddenly uh, arriving in my, my life. That's such a beautiful gesture. Um, you know, when you say, of course, you could not keep your mother from dying with your bank account, but what a bank account can do is you could provide, if you felt like you were able to, you could provide comforts and a level of care um, that that you hoped and and would want or would expect for her. And I, I, I sort of. I wonder, did you and Leonard Cohen, or have you, how do you think about the ability, um, the privilege of being able to pause life, to think about going inward, to step away from the path that you're on, um, the, how, how so often that, that's enabled by having the money, or at least the faith that if you pause making money, you'll be able to keep making money when you come back. Um, how do you think about that? So I think I have a twofold answer to that, which is you're absolutely right. I've been so lucky. I've always uh, lived in comfort. Uh, and I, I, I've i always had the confidence that if I needed to, I could find a way to earn the money. So much of my life has been travel to often the most desperate and impoverished parts of the world. I know not to take it for granted because 98% of my global neighbors are not in that position. They don't have the chance to go and stay in a monastery in Big Sur the way I do, let alone live for five years in a Zen monastery the way Leonard did. And the other, um, the other thing is that choosing to live simply can be as much a form of vanity as collecting Rolls Royces. Um, I have a friend who has a very serious Zen practice. And he said that when he was a young man, he determined, although he was living in California and he was very well educated, I'm going to live on $8,000 a year. In other words, I'm going to live beyond almost the, the maximum degree of simplicity. And at some point he realized that wanting to live on $8,000 a year could be as much a form of self-gratification as wanting to live on $8 million a year. Do you think um, at this stage in your life when you think about um, the ambition to have more money. Is that something that you have, whether it's for um, your own comfort or just for the ability to give away money? <laughs> it's so funny you say that, only because um, two days ago, I wrote down for myself in my little notebook, um, if somebody gave me $10 million tomorrow, I wouldn't change a single thing huh. in my life, which is a sign that you know I'm lucky enough to do what I want to do, which is writing. Although we're in this $500 a month, tiny two-room apartment, we've been here for 30 years now and I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. So I'm fortunate that, that, that I seem to have found the life that I have um, what I need and, and, and no more and uh, no less. And of course, I worry about my wife and children if I die. So I want to make sure that um, they're taken care of. And you know, like everybody, my uh, my economy was you know shattered by by the pandemic, and uh, for two years, revenue was probably close to zero. But 
um, I had much to be grateful for at the same time, starting with my health and the fact that I and my wife and loved ones are, are still alive. Uh, so, uh, again, I think we have a choice every day about whether we fasten our attention on what we don't have or what we do have. And probably I found if I think more about the things I do have that I'm so lucky to have, um, then <laughs> I'll, I'll be much happier than wishing the world or other than it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess my, my last question for you, Pico, is about um, your experience of Leonard Cohen and listening to his music after he was gone. He's been gone eight years now. What, what, what have you observed about what it's like for you to listen to him and to not be able to be in relationship with him anymore? My wife always maintains he never died because his music and his presence in some ways is more alive than ever. His songs are, I think, more ubiquitous now than they were 20 years ago. But his, um, his death hit me really, really hard, more hard than almost any death I can remember, partly because there was so much I felt I could share only with him. I would find love poems from the sixth Dalai Lama, or I'd find the perfect description of what it is to be a stranger in the world. And I thought, Leonard is the one person who will hmm. see what this is about. I mean, of course, even as a monk, his hope, perhaps, was that people would still listen to parts of his songs after his death. And, and they're doing so more than ever before, which is a reminder that the best in us never dies. And for a writer like myself, it's a reminder that when I'm no longer breathing, maybe there'll be little things that I've written here and there <laughs> that are still available uh, to people. But um, I really miss his person. And I remember when he brought out his last album, 17 days before his death, uh, I, I wrote an email to him to say how moved I was. And he wrote back to me uh, saying, oh, I, I need to hear that. In other words, he sounded very vulnerable and fragile, mm. as I'd never heard him. And I sent him back this poem from the Japanese poet Basho, just a haiku that said, this autumn evening, no one on it. Uh, and that was my last exchange with him, because two weeks later, he was gone. But it was the kind of thing I knew I could send him a haiku, in some ways about death, and that he would understand it. Um, so... Yeah, I, I sorely miss going to visit him, but I'm so grateful that we can all partake of everything he brought into the world. That's Pico Iyer. His new book, The Half-Known Life, In Search of Paradise, is just out this month. Pico also wrote the liner notes for several of Leonard Cohen's albums, including The Essential Leonard Cohen, an album that is worth spending a lot of time with. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. This episode was produced by Afi Yellowduke. The rest of the team is Andrew Dunn, Zoe Azoulay, Liliana Maria Percy Ruiz, and Lindsay Foster Thomas. Our intern is Baze Hohen. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Instagram at Anna Sale Picks. That's P-I-C-S. The show is at Death Sex Money on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thanks to Adrian Engel in Marlboro, New Jersey, for being a member of Death, Sex, and Money and supporting us with a monthly donation. Join Adrian and support what we do here by going to deathsexmoney.org slash donate. 
Pico did tell me, even though his wife wasn't exactly a fan, he was excited to introduce her to Leonard Cohen. My wife didn't know who Leonard Cohen was, and she didn't love his music. And then he extended a packet of cigarettes towards her, and she just got weak at the knees. And to this day, she would say, that's the coolest thing she's ever (laughs) seen any man do. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC.